Cage.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. everybody, I'm half of Nico Gevo. And I'm that other half. And we're here on mcu.html to talk about Infinity War Part 3. Yeah, let's do this. If you say, Mr. Stark, I don't feel good, I swear to God I'm going to stab you. Great news, I don't have to say it this movie, someone says it for me. Ugh, loophole. So I think one of the most fascinating things about Avengers Infinity War is how much of it we knew going into it, and how much of it we know has to be undone at the end of it. There's something really interesting that this film has this sort of like build up and counter build up atmosphere surrounding it. You know, it reminds me a lot of what we had been saying about Age of Ultron and Civil War being so close together and both having so many cast members. And, you know, there was so much build up to Infinity War. And yet going into it, we were fully aware there was a second part coming a year later. So it wasn't completely fulfilling no matter how hard it tried. And beyond the fact that we knew that most people were going to have to come back from the snappening because they had sequeling coming up, this film, now we know that so many of them are coming back for Disney Plus shows. Yeah, that was a big announcement this week. A lot of news about Disney Plus. I shared an article about that on our Facebook page, Husbands Talking More or Less, over on Facebook. And it confirmed several shows that we have been aware were in the works, but didn't have full 100% confirmation for all of them yet, plus some new announcements as well. It's got to be hard to manage a multimedia empire in this day and age. And for no other, because I don't actually feel terrible for billionaires, but if for no other reason, it's got to be difficult figuring out how to manage advanced excitement and the actual films coming out themselves. It's got to be difficult figuring out what to give away and what not to give away. Because the list of characters that are getting Disney Plus shows is crazy. Yeah, right? So here's what we know in order. Currently, there is definitely confirmed for 2019 Falcon and the Winter Soldier starring Sebastian Stan and Anthony Mackie. After that is the Scarlet Witch and Vision show, which is... Adorably named WandaVision, starring Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany, coming out in 2020. And then after that, we have, starring Tom Hiddleston, a Loki show coming out, also in 2020. The biggest news recently is that we are getting, in addition to those already amazing titles, a Hawkeye series starring Jeremy Renner and an as-yet-unnamed actress as Kate Bishop also coming out in 2020. And there are also rumors running around about both a Lady Sif series and a She-Hulk series co-starring Mark Ruffalo. Beyond even the fact that that is so many shows that they have announced in such a crazy way, this takes so much from the questions that surround the end of Endgame. And I can't help but be very aware of that at the moment. This is also in addition to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is doing two more seasons on Marvel, as well as the upcoming Hulu block. In addition to Marvel's Runaways on Hulu, they picked up animated series for MODOK, Hitmonkey, Tigra and Dazzler, as well as Howard the Duck, which will all culminate in Marvel's The Offenders, which is apparently, you know, a really cute little play on the recently canceled Marvel Netflix Defenders group. 
Yeah, they also announced a animated series on Disney Plus for Marvel's What If. The first episode, for example, will feature what if Peggy Carter had been made the super soldier instead of Steve Rogers. So they have a lot, a lot, a lot of irons in the fire coming forward. I have to assume that part of that is an effort to try and not lose momentum in the face of Endgame. Endgame is a really great jumping off point as much as it's a great new jumping on point. And I think they're doing everything they can to make jumping off of Marvel just about impossible at this point. Yeah, I agree. And it's pushing into new forms of media, which we have frequently said we would love to see more of from the franchise. It's just a little bit disappointing because, like you say, knowing what series are coming after this sort of paint a picture of who we probably will and will not see in Endgame. We probably don't need to see a ton of Falcon and Winter Soldier and Wanda and Vision if they're all going to be getting their own TV series. So, you know, but it's not like the entire cast of these films isn't already packed with so many faces. So that's at least one consolation. I also think it's interesting that they've essentially revealed that the vision is going to continue on, despite the fact that he did not die via snap. Mm. It's also of note that nothing Guardians has been announced. There isn't any kind of Rocket and Groot blasting through the stars series being voice acted by Bradley Cooper and Vin Diesel with an anchor hero. When Guardians of the Galaxy has frequently been lauded as one of the most popular commercially viable properties in the MCU and being so disconnected from the Earth narrative has so much room to explore without affecting any of the Earthbound heroes. So yeah, I agree that it's strange that they haven't decided to explore that avenue. I wonder if maybe after Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, we might see them exploring more with that property. I also think after they have a better chance to establish the Marvel Cosmic line, which is probably going to be one of the end results of Endgame, I expect to see a lot of big things from Captain Marvel, both on Earth and in space. But before we can get to Captain Marvel, I believe we do have an Infinity War to finish. We do, we do. When last we left our intrepid heroes, the, as we dubbed them, Secret Avengers had just absconded with Vision and Wanda. Any last thoughts on that fight scene? You know, we don't get nearly as many Vision fight scenes in this franchise as we perhaps could, but as we've discussed, it's probably part and due to his near unlimited power. When you have a character who's nigh invulnerable and you keep trying to play up the invulnerable part, it becomes much more tricky to play up the nigh part. So they have to walk this fine line of constantly showing how unstoppable the vision is and constantly dodging around things involving the vision. That's why I pointed out it's really interesting that he's a character who didn't die in the snap, who they've already confirmed is going to get more projects after this. So it's really interesting because the vision they're already telling us can come back from the dead. Yeah, and it makes you wonder what stories they could have for a character like that going forward then. Are we going to see him without the Infinity Stone in his head be a far more limited character a la Illyria from Angel Season 5 or, you know, every single other overpowered godlike creature who had to be depowered to be able to fit in with a regular cast? You mean like Thor losing his hammer for Ragnarok? Yeah, you know. One of the big things is that this movie required both lowering and elevating characters back up periodically to keep it progressing forward. As much as we saw Thor break down at the beginning of the film, we do see him triumph when he gets Stormbreaker. And for the great way we see Cap overcome the Black Order, at the same time, it's balanced with that final battle that's just so hopeless. 
seeing Cap was a really great way to sign off on that second episode because I felt like Captain America made this an Avengers movie again. Mm. The Guardian stuff was so Guardians-y, which I'm not complaining about. I actually really thought that was one of the best things they did. But I needed Cap to remind me this was an Avengers film. Yeah, you know, I didn't think about it until you framed it that way. And the opening scene in the film even, well, not opening, but the second battle scene in the film where it's Iron Man and Hulk and Doc Strange and Spider-Man, all of these characters had interacted with other characters outside their own films already. Iron Man was a major part of the Spider-Man film. Doc Strange had had interaction with Thor. Hulk had even appeared, however briefly, in in an Iron Man film. So, like, it's weird to say, but it felt more like a crossover than it felt like a genuine Avengers film. It wasn't until that final piece of Captain America showed up. That's when they first played the cue for the Avengers theme, because that was really what rounded out the team, him and Black Widow especially. That's why I said I felt they missed an opportunity to refer to this as the Marvel Universe Infinity War. So speaking of being a Marvel Cinematic Universe film at large, there is so much spotlight on Gamora here. It's incredible. I feel like Gamora perhaps gets the most spotlight of any of the Guardians, except maybe Nebula. Yeah, I really agree. This Gamora nightmare flashback memory is a full two-minute sequence where we see an extended look at young Gamora and how she came to be in Thanos' care. And, you know, on it's really interesting how much of this film is centered around her. In many ways, it's about the men in her life, though, and how they react to her. But I really feel like for Gamora herself as a character, she still is frequently shown to have her own agency and free will, even when she is forced into these situations. I've actually made that comment about Gamora before as well, that I feel like Gamora is a passenger in a larger story that discusses her. It's unfortunate because even after she's gone, the movie still manages to be about her without giving her further exploration. But I did want to comment on one thing. They show her with that little knife in the flashback, and then we see the knife again. I kept thinking the knife was the Infinity Stone, and hear me out on this. No, totally. It turns out that Thanos has just been giving out Infinity Stones willy-nilly. <laughs> he it, like It seems like he actually had all of them at some point or another and was like, I'm going to give this one to this guy and have him get me more stones. And everybody was just kind of like, that was a wonderful idea, God Just give the little man the stone. And Thanos is like, good, I'm going to go jack off in my glove. He came into possession of at least two. He had the Mind Stone and gave it to Loki to use. And while on Earth, Loki did come into the possession of the Space Stone. But Thanos let Loki play out his little drama so that he could invade Earth and ended up losing two stones for it. I don't think we have confirmation that he knew at that point that the time stone was on Earth. So I don't know why he would have wanted our planet. I understand now. Captain America is going to defeat Thanos thanks to the transitive property of stone ownership. You see, because Captain America got the stones from Red Skull in the sixth book. You can't bring this up in every show. You know that, right? Fine. So it turned out that the stones weren't in the knife. He folded his arms. He's real angry now. Yeah, no, I I really thought so, too. 
all of the stuff about where the soul stone was was weird and out of nowhere and it required retconning an interaction between Gamora and Nebula where she was like I know where it is nothing about this mission to find the stone was ever mentioned before it's weird this scene is weird I don't like the I don't like a flashback trying to make Thanos seem endearing I think it's great that they want a fleshed out villain and to show that he doesn't think that he's in the wrong but I think it just led to too many fanboys being like Thanos had a point no he didn't hush and speaking of people that don't hush creepy spindle fingers is like in the background being like you are lucky enough to die for Thanos now. Yeah, I really don't like him. He's not compelling. Part of the problem with the Black Order is they don't really go anywhere. The children of Thanos, whatever you need me to call them to make everybody. Stones, gems, infinity pebbles, whatever you want. It's all the same crap. I don't think that they're even remotely interesting. It's like, there's the big one. And that's the girl one, and that's the one that looks like the other one, but the other one has mind powers, and this one looks a little bit more like he's trying to get the one ring and has a cloak. And, like, it almost sounds insulting to say the girl one, but she's the best one, so she just happens to be the most iconic by being the notably only female in the Black Order. I would also like to point out that her name is by far the coolest and sounds like a deluxe edition of a video game or like a really good car color. Oh, I got my Camry in Proxima Midnight. Mm. Yeah, it's way better than Corvus Glaive. I like my Dodge Ram in Ebony Maw. Cull Obsidian is kind of okay, but like, do his friends just call him Cull? Actually, one time I went to the Dominican Republic and I had some questionable sushi at a gas station and I got a bad case of Cull Obsidian and it took weeks to clear up. You poor thing. We're making fun, but knowing that they did a draft of this film that gave so much backstory to these characters and not feeling any of it is reflected in this final draft that cut all of it down, I would have at least thought there would be something we could glean from the exchanges, from their behaviors. It's not that they aren't good. I don't know what could have been in that draft because I don't get anything like there's a lot deeper to these characters. That's actually from the unthinkable eight-part version where each one of the children of Thanos get their own film, and it's called the Thanos Orphanage Presents... The Children of Thanos Saga. A Rope of Thanos. So anyway, what the hell are we talking about? All right, so we get a scene between Gamora and Star-Lord that doesn't make me root for them any more than normal, where she basically tells him to kill her if the time comes. And Drax makes the moment very uncomfortable. You know, they tease him and say that he's not actually invisible, but if he really was standing there for an hour and they didn't notice him during this heightened emotional conversation, he really only didn't get caught until he started eating those chips. And was probably made emotional by the situation. At this point, I do accept the Guardians as a group and a family and friends. They're not just people stuck on a ship anymore. I see them as a team now, and I would accept that he's actually so upset at the thought of having to deal with... Star-Lord killing Gamora that it, you know, fucks up his concentration. I'm trying for you, James Gunn. I'm working with you here. And I'm sure James Gunn appreciates that. I just feel like that is invalidated by the next scene and the Battle of Nowhere, where, as usual, he just goes charging in, not using any thought whatsoever. And it's like, at a certain point, you have to cut toxic influences from your life, guys. The intro to this scene was really cool, though. The score was very Star Wars reminiscent, I felt. I think the score for this film really pushed itself beyond to try and take influences from the entire MCU while also building a brand new sound for itself. 
I completely agree. The scores of the last few films have been so strong. I also think this scene highlights one of my biggest problems with this film, though. It sort of seems like Thanos uses the reality gem as the illusions stone at all times, because I could accept that he actually did use the reality gem to transform reality in front of them. But it does seem a little bit more like a mind control illusion than it does like he's actually transforming the universe with supernatural power. Does that kind of come across to you too? That every time he uses the reality stone, it's just like an illusion? It does. I get that. It's definitely the most nebulous of the infinity stones. There was that whole thing about how it chose to take on a liquid form instead of a solid, but I guess that's just out the window now. I don't think they really knew what they were doing with it. And frankly, they introduced it so long ago at this point. Reality Stone came out in 2013 in Thor The Dark World, so five years later, we're bringing it back up. That's one of the prices you pay when a movie is the summation of so many pieces being brought together. It's important to remember that that's the excitement and the purpose, but it does get a little bit more complicated when so many chefs over the period of time that this recipe was being designed got to put in their own unique flavor. Speaking of unique flavor, this scene bears an intersection of quirkiness between the Russos and James Gunn, if y'all weren't already aware. One of the members of the collector's collection, if you spot in the background in one of those cages a blue man that would be one tobias funke david cross actually did that appearance himself what an odd choice it makes sense to me there were so few never nudes to begin with there were literally dozens of them and he's probably the last one left the collector had to have him that's true he had to be there to represent one of the other things that i appreciated about the battle at nowhere was that it did set up the fact that the Guardians are kind of the weak link of this situation. And I don't even mean that with great malice, but the Avengers are called together. It's a convocation of righteousness. And the Guardians are kind of just some dudes who decided to live in this ship together and save themselves. Yeah, basically. You know, it's weird. I always remembered this scene going as Quill chickens out on pulling the trigger on Gamora. I feel really bad because I already give him so much hate and that's something that he doesn't deserve. He does ultimately do it. The part where Gamora is like, not him. Like, girl, that was too obvious. You're not good at espionage. You're supposed to be real good at this. And that's actually something Thanos points out. She's not very good at lying. And as much as I appreciate you coming to his defense, Quill takes too long. He should have shot sooner. Instead, he leaves enough time for Thanos to psychologically break him. But you know what? This whole scene is like about six minutes long. So I appreciate that. It's very mercifully short. The whole nightmare and then the ship sequence were actually almost as long as this whole thing. So we get through that pretty quickly. We end up back on Earth and we are back with the rogue Quinjet at the Avengers complex. This movie handles moving between so many plots really well. I never feel like there's too much going on. I feel like there's never more than two or three things at any given concentration before they resolve one of them so they can merge some stuff together, and they keep it moving at a good pace. I actually don't find myself bored watching this movie at any point. I think the only uneven moment of pacing, not to jump ahead of this scene, but is the fact that after this we finally get back to the spaceship. It's a full half hour since we saw those guys. I think that could have possibly been mentioned again or something at some point. That might have been a little bit helpful. But everything else, they do a pretty good job of trying to make sure that we keep up with all the characters and check in with everyone. We check back in with Thor and Rocket frequently. This is the third appearance 
appearance now of Thunderbolt Ross. What an obscure character to have plucked out of the Incredible Hulk to be the only character to return played by the same actor. I appreciate you calling him obscure, but in so many ways, he really is the central villain of that film, and he's the only credible threat from that film. The Abomination's super strong. All right, Thor, Thunderblast, and he's dead. No big deal. But there is an actual threat from Thunderbolt Ross and his capacity to fuck up the Avengers' lives bureaucratically. Yeah, because, you know, an apocalypse is an apocalypse, and when that's over, it's over. But Thunderbolt Ross is someone who can ruin their lives once the battle is over and they just want to live. Thankfully, his contributions to this film are mostly avoidable. Yeah, Rhodey just hangs right up on him. I doubt that Rhodey will actually end up being court-martialed in the end of these films, but who knows, maybe he'll just straight up end up being War Machine. I think that would make a lot of sense. They need to find a way to fill a lot of Avengers teams coming up, it would seem. And it was really nice to see this Avengers team reunite. It was nice to see Rhodey and Cap greet each other as friends. After having read that the writers of this script claim to have gone out of their way not to mention the Natasha Bruce romance. They certainly do shine a very direct light on it, especially with Sam calling the moment between them awkward. I actually thought the interaction between them was, yeah, kind of stifled, but really nice. I love her genuine smile to see him and see that he's okay. Natasha is such a great character. I wonder if they're saying they didn't shine a light on it in comparison to, say, Whedon and his making them discuss babies. Yeah, that's true. At this point, the things on Earth really start to heat up as they realize why people are after Vision and the Mind Stone, and I love everyone's dedication to trying to make sure that Vision doesn't need to sacrifice himself for this, even though he is so immediately willing and ready. Look, I'm not saying that I am a Stucky shipper or anything, I'm just saying that Steve stares dewy-eyed at the sad lovers when one is ready to sacrifice himself to save the world, and it immediately makes him think of Wakanda. Just, just saying. I, too, am not a Stucky shipper because I don't see there being any potential for a relationship there, but I definitely think there is a case to be made for the emotional connection being defining for both characters. And then we flash right on over to Wakanda and see T'Challa and Okoye. They immediately packed their conversation with like half a dozen references to Black Panther and how much that story gave us, and I loved it. It's... Almost sad that Wakanda and Black Panther and everything from there are the most stable at the moment, because I feel like that's why we end up seeing so little of them. Everyone else in this film needs to get their shit together. Wakanda is ready to take on this fight. But that's even part of the point of the film, Black Panther, talking about how Wakanda has been so uniquely cut off from the rest of the world. They haven't had to deal with international relations in any meaningful way prior to this, so Wakanda being ready is not just a testament to Wakanda's ability and the world they've built for themselves, but it's a testament to the careful narrative Ryan Coogler depicted for the film. Absolutely. And from there, we do finally get back to the spaceship and see how Ebony Maw is dispatched. If this kid calls movies that I grew up on old one more fucking time, but for all seriousness, I think it's a cute way to handle it. There's only so many ways you can get rid of these over-the-top, super-powerful baddies. You kind of got to go with what you got. And it was a pretty clever ploy. I kind of love when 
overwhelming giants are taken down in unexpected ways, and that was certainly unexpected. These are three very interesting characters to watch play off of each other for sure. I absolutely adore when Peter tries to say it's kind of Tony's fault that he's here because Robert Downey Jr. looks like he wants to smack the shit out of him so genuinely. It's a really great expression. And part of it that blows my mind is, again, how was this not part of the original plan? How is their dynamic, which is so central and definitive of the franchise, not a part of the original franchise plan? It couldn't have been. They didn't have Spider-Man, but it's so essential to the emotional and overall impact of this film. And this scene really did a lot more, once again, to make me like Doctor Strange. I think he could have come across like a lot more of an asshole when he basically said he would let Tony and Peter die to protect the stone, but he's being fairly reasonable. He is thinking about these universal stakes, and it's the exact opposite of the behavior that we see from someone like Quill, who is a lot more selfishly focused. He is coming off like an asshole, but it's the right thing to do, and his conviction about doing what's best for the universe really feeds into the overwhelming belief of fandom that he sacrifices himself later in the film because it's the only way that they will be able to defeat Thanos. Especially because Stephen Strange, at the beginning of Doctor Strange, is not the kind of person that would sacrifice anything of his own let alone himself. It definitely does show the kind of transformation and growth you're talking about. Yeah. With that, we then go over to Thanos' ship, and I honestly wrote down like three notes for this scene because I find so much of the Thanos stuff pretty dull. You mentioned the line earlier when he said, I never taught you to lie. That's why you're so bad at it. I think that might be my, isn't it ironic, Tony? I found that performance so flat so boring, and once again, don't confuse a deep voice and tallness for a great performance. Because at the end of the day, Thanos is kind of a humongous liar. If you're telling me that Thanos does not lie and lie and lie to himself, you're crazy. Because I don't I don't think it's possible he can truly believe that killing half of everybody in existence is the best option. Because of all of the things we laid out, that would literally mean planes crash out of the sky. That's just going to kill more people. That's not survival of the fittest. That's you're a madman with a weapon. And I don't believe that he can genuinely believe his own love for Gamora, especially with the way that he is just easily willing to sacrifice her. They hint that point so hard that no one else has been able to do it before, and it takes him like a second. But we'll get back to that point, unfortunately. Instead, let's talk about something more fun, which is Thor and Groot and Rocket arriving at Nivavalir, Nevada, whatever. So Groot, Thor, and Rocket arrive at Viva Blackpool. And it's really interesting because I cannot help but notice how much I love Rocket in any scene that he's in with Thor. Yes. There's something about having Rocket with Quill, as Kevos pointed out, that just makes Rocket suck. But giving Rocket a different energy to play off of creates a really great dynamic for the character and shows him in that, I don't know, he's like, he's like Yoda for the Starbucks generation. Hmm. I think it's that Rocket and Quill are both so deeply insecure, but Quill's lets his insecurities control him so much more than Rocket, and Rocket hates what he sees of himself in Quill. Thor is a damaged character, but he's very secure, and he doesn't take his insecurities out on other people, and I think that that's something that Rocket responds to 
in Thor. Rocket himself knows that he's not perfect, but it's hard for him to accept that from others, I guess. And speaking of Thor responding, Thor speaks Groot. He took the elective back on Asgard growing up. That's the kind of touch that Ragnarok added to the character of Thor that the Russos thought about and made sure to include. That's a really great example of how this really does bring together so many films. That's one of those jokes where it did make me laugh, but then I'm like, why would Groot be an elective on Asgard? It's an ancient language spoken by trees, and Asgard is on the world tree. Okay. Okay, but so then they get to Eitri, and he's like, Asgard was supposed to protect us, and Thor is like, Asgard is gone. But I'm like, when did Thanos get to Eitri and make him make the Infinity Gauntlet that Asgard was gone to not protect him? That just happened last week. Meanwhile, there was a gauntlet in Odin's throne room that was already a fake. So there's just so much on top of itself here. Because even if it wasn't like the real Infinity Gauntlet, it's clearly the same design. So he didn't just make this gauntlet up this week. It's, you know, one of the more glaring moments, I would say. For sure. That really does stand out. As much as I enjoy all of the Eitri stuff, I do feel like that makes a really weird kind of moment. I wonder if that has to do with the secrecy of filming a scene like that, because I don't think anyone really knew Peter Dinklage was going to be in this film, and frequently for cameos of that nature, they do their best to film these things with a skeleton crew and bring in the least number of people to be involved. So I wonder if scenes like that might have more problems with them sometime because there was no one to say, this doesn't make sense, you know? I completely do. These little time things that add up over the course of a film. The film is in a compressed time to begin with because it's two hours that's meant to represent several weeks, but you kind of have to let this go and that go, and it's meant to have been this much time in this character's arc, and you don't realize it hasn't been in this other character's arc. It becomes very complicated. It's almost like they forgot that Ragnarok wasn't two years ago in the Marvel Cinematic Universe timeline. Yeah. And speaking of characters and arcs, we see Nebula escape Thanos' custody and immediately send a warning message to the Guardians of the Galaxy, which I thought was so fucking cute. Not only that, but she addressed it specifically to Mantis, the nice one. Mantis gets such a rough shake. She gets so little personality, but I feel like the uses of her in this film really, really made me happy, and I'm eager to see her more in the ongoing Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. And even though she seems to be like this sweet, sort of innocent, naive, less powerful one, she's still usually right up in the action. She was in the climax of Volume 2, and she is in the battles in Infinity War as well, and I love that. Once we get to Titan and the rest of the teams that need to meet finally meet, the movie takes a really interesting turn. It becomes, in my mind, a different film once the Guardians and the Avengers are united on Titan and need to form a plan. How so? Tony Stark is never questioned by somebody on his team in terms of his authority to make decisions. His plans are questioned in terms of the reasonability of achieving the outcome. But here you have Quill, who refuses to not be a thorn in Tony's side. One of the biggest weapons the Avengers have is that Tony will pull out whatever he needs to pull out to save the day. But you have Quill 
constantly playing a wild card factor, disrupting his ability to execute these plans, as we will all see in the worst scene ever. We also have Doctor Strange, who kind of exists to create a moral center for Tony. Tony's usually willing to maybe go a little too far to save the day, but he can't because Doctor Strange is watching over him, and he has his charge. This makes Tony forced to behave in a way that we have never seen him before, and considering we were just earlier in this movie like, yeah, finally, Tony leaning in Avengers again, it's really shocking that now he's leading this very different Avengers. Yeah, okay, I can see what you're saying. And, you know, he even has more respect from the Earth Avengers than he does from the Guardians, because as much as Doctor Strange is not afraid to go toe-to-toe with Tony, Tony has his respect because he knows everything that Tony has accomplished back on Earth. Star-Lord just doesn't give a shit about anyone or anything but himself, and even if he knew what Tony Stark had accomplished back on Earth, he probably wouldn't care. I imagine that if Captain Marvel has been running around in the background in the cosmos this entire time, he's probably heard of her, so he would probably think Tony Stark is nothing compared to this other Terran. This also does give us the oh-so-beloved time travel moment. It's really interesting because this Doctor Strange going through 14,605 futures is so central to every fan's theory on this movie. Every damn one. And I understand why. There's something very specific about he goes through 14,605 futures and there's only one where they win. So we have to assume that every action he takes pushes them towards that future. Otherwise, it was a waste of language on that character's part of having him be so specific and having his aim of keeping the universe safe so integral to his character. Since he's about to die, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out how cute my little PewDiePie is in this whole entire friggin' scene, by the way. I love Tony telling him he doesn't want another a, another single pop culture reference out of him for the rest of the trip. It makes it sound like it's a field trip. It's just so fucking funny. And when Star-Lord is like, is Footloose the most still the best movie ever made? It was never the best movie ever made. And he looks crushed. Ugh, it wasn't, Quill. It really wasn't. I think that one of the things this movie managed to do really well is it managed to get most people's humor uniquely. I cannot imagine another one of the Titan characters saying, Magic! More magic! Magic with a kick! I can't imagine any of the other Avengers on Titan saying that. And Cap's exchange with Groot later, I am Steve Rogers. I can't imagine somebody else being that genuine. The only thing was weird was why was he obsessed with people putting eggs in him? Has he been reading his Mpreg tag on AO3? Like... He brought it up five times. No one's trying to impregnate you, Peter, in this reality. (laughs) Unfortunately, though, in this reality, we are at Vormir. And I'm not kidding when I frequently tell people, if you have to pee, you can go during this entire sequence. You don't miss much of anything. With the exception of the Return of the Red Skull, played by a different actor because Hugo Weaving was upset that his constant performance of super psycho villains was scarring his children. Yeah, you don't miss anything. Yeah, that's a really good point. This was a really weird, interesting, and fun use of Red Skull to finally bring that thread back up and tell us what happened to that character. It's interesting because the Red Skull continues to menace the Marvel Universe now. So this was a very specific choice. I also think it's a lovely choice. This was a great way to say stuff happened early on in the franchise and we're going to honor it. But can we not honor this because... You know, I already started attacking it earlier in the episode, but it even goes down to the fact that was there anyone in the audience who didn't know exactly what the sacrifice was going to have to be the moment the Red Skull described it? And 
why does it take a full minute and a half for Gamora to get it? I guess she so strongly doesn't believe that Thanos could love her that she couldn't think he would think she was the sacrifice. But unfortunately, all of his behavior has shown that she's his little princess and he just wants to be her daddy unless it is this thing and then he'll just murder her. I thought he should have to give up the other five stones to get the sixth one. Or something. I just find it hard to believe that whatever this trap is to protect the soul stone, that the universe would cough it up. I, I honestly didn't know what else it could be, but I feel like if you have to murder the person you love the most, if that is your sacrifice, it's weird for you to be rewarded with the soul stone. That does not sound like much of a security system. No, not at all. So let's go somewhere with a great security system instead and go hang out in Wakanda for a little while. Ice got you so cold. The fact that that scene was seven minutes long, now I am pissed again that there isn't enough Wakanda in this movie. It's interesting because I feel like I would say half the movie is Wakanda. Like a fifth of the movie is Thor in space being like, I'm going to get my new hammer. And it's amazing to me that that's not the case for Wakanda at all. Yeah, it's only in a third, unfortunately. I want more in the sequel. But so we see our Earth team start to join forces most men shake hands in this film but cap and bucky hug just saying and then we get more shuri it's annoying that she's only in this little of the film but she's awesome in it immediately and i love that she immediately hands bruce banner his ass to him that's what you get for not having heard of wakanda in age of ultron bruce and not even that but the fact that the guy just spent however long in space and thought that he would still be up to date on the most modern earth technologies is dumb as hell yeah, especially knowing how rapidly it is growing in this day and age. One of the things that emotionally makes me go off the rails is when T'Challa says and get this man a shield. That is just like everything to me. It is. It absolutely is. And, you know, this film really starts to pick up a pace at this point. We have Thor and Itri working with Rocket and Groot to get his Stormbreaker to work over in Nevada. However, you doesn't matter. We're probably not going to see it again. I don't care as much about any of the other Guardians as I do about Rocket Raccoon. Once again, he's great in the scene i just want to keep seeing that character evolve all the way into the 2030s and there's no reason he can't this was a really great opportunity for rocket because he's shown as a guardian he's then shown as thor's sidekick and after that he's shown fighting on earth Rocket is given a lot of opportunities to shine in many different constructions. Meanwhile, it's amusing to see Bruce Banner not shine in the different construction of using the Hulkbuster armor. And the look that Okoye gives him when that white boy falls down is wonderful. She's like, why does T'Challa keep hanging out with these people? Okoye might be the unsung hero of Infinity War, despite the fact that she can only be in a maximum of a third of the movie. She somehow rises to the top i truly believe that she is an equal-footed avenger and there is something incredible about her presence that performance and i'm gonna try not to lose my shit i know we're not at it yet but when proxima midnight goes after scarlet witch and okoye and nat show up to defend her it's this moment where you're like yes these three women are avengers and they will save the world it's just such a great moment and okoye deserved this opportunity to shine it is so great that so much of the elements of black panther are transforming the marvel universe every appearance they have 
Absolutely. I think the only reason I didn't think of her exactly as an Avenger before this is because she's, you know, of the Dora Milaje and she has this life in Wakanda. So I don't think it's the same way that I didn't think about Rhodey as an Avenger for the longest time because he is part of the U.S. military. He has this whole other life. But no, they are absolutely integral members of the team who contribute amazingly. Speaking of Rhodey, Rhodey and Sam working together really it's such an important thing because it's such a rare opportunity to have two black men in the same superhero film both be good guys and to have them both be good guys here where there could be bad blood between them, but they're able to rise above and become the best men they need to be to save the day. Such an incredible moment for my Sam and an awesome moment for Rhodey. Yes, I loved them being the first line of defense in air support after the accident in Civil War. And I loved the Jabari showing up once again. That's fantastic. I believe I read that the Jabari war chant was not scripted for Infinity War, but that the cast had just filmed Black Panther and had been so used to doing this that they semi-improvised it and the Russo brothers had no idea what was going on. And once they were informed, they were like, oh, oh, fantastic. You guys are amazing at your jobs. This is obviously going in the script now, no question. There's so much going on at that moment because... They worked so hard to make the Wakandan army seem so impressive as it's charging up. And we see M'Baku with his people and we see T'Challa lead bravely. And then the moment you get a look at those monster wolf dog things and how many of them there are, the Wakandan army seems so insignificant. Thor is failing to reignite the, the sun. There's so much happening and it feels so dark. And there's this spark of hope in that everyone is going to give everything they've got at this moment, and you just might win. I love that you brought up those aliens, because the MCU really tries to solve the violence problem that is frequently inherent in action stories and superhero stories. How can they fight this army without looking like monsters if they're killing all of these beings? And showing the mindless beasts killing themselves on the energy shield to get in. Like Okoye highlights that. She says they're killing themselves. It really both heightens the threat of these creatures and basically shows why it's okay to murder them. They really tried to go out of their way to make sure that we could only root for our heroes. And as much as we'd had something along the lines of this with the Chitauri and in some ways the Ultron bots, it's not the same thing as living creatures that are literally killing themselves to simply break into the defenses. They also had to work really hard to give us a reason to have the Wakandan army. At the end of the day, all we've known that Thanos was invading with was four horrifying people in Hot Topic style clothing and makeup. <laughs> So having this army just seems like Captain America was like, I need to line a bunch of people up to die. So having these almost Mojo-esque warwolves to fight against really did add a layer we've never had in the MCU before. I love that you slotted Captain America as the leader of this battle, though, because it brings me to my next point, which is the fact that I love that he shares the title of leader of this battle with T'Challa. T'Challa being in charge of, obviously, his own nation's army and Cap being usually the de facto leader of the Avengers. And I love that it wasn't a question that they respected each other and their titles in this 
horrific battle. I also think it's really weird that the battle on Earth starts so long before the battle on Titan. We get like four minutes of battling on Earth, and then we go to Titan, and Doc Strange gets this really slow backstory on Thanos, which... An hour and 45 minutes into the film is a really, really long time to start to get more pieces of why Thanos is doing what he's doing. It's so funny that you bring that up because I think that ties back into my comment earlier on how certain threads get tied up first. I feel like nothing gets going on Titan until after the Thor storyline gets a reasonable conclusion. Thor helping to create Stormbreaker. There's just this unbelievable line of moments where... Thor decides, I mean, Thor is the punk-ass kid king. He was the one who was like, nah, I get to be king now, bitch. And like, here he's like, no, I, if I have to die in this star, I have to die in this star. That's what that's what I have to do. And Rocket, you see so much worry in Rocket's eyes for someone he barely knows. And it all happens and you see Rocket fly as fast as he can to try and catch Thor. And he just can't do it. And that smack is so visceral. And Itri is screaming, you know, I need the, I need the handle, I need the handle. And I just get this lump in my throat at the look on Groot's face because Groot became a child and now he's a teenager again. And this is Groot's first moment to determine that with great power comes great responsibility. Groot proves himself worthy and he lifts that blade and he forges it of himself. It absolutely is everything a superhero narrative should be on every level. And they fly right into that battle because they even hint that Stormbreaker can summon the Bifrost. So fucking good. I mean, what else is there to say on that? It's, I agree with every single friggin' point you just made. It's such an amazing, amazing scene and how touched we are by this scene between Norse god, a giant dwarf, a talking raccoon, and a living tree. It's, it's amazing how they were able to put so much emotion into a scene like that. And then we transition from there to Titan, and Thanos gives his long and boring story. I noted that Quill sort of snickers when Doctor Strange calls himself a master of the mystic arts. It's one of those times where I don't exactly blame him, but at the same time, like, you're such a child. And what's ridiculous about that is he's so proud of the silly pirate terminology he uses for himself. Mm. It's because he grew up in this sense of the 80s and He-Man. Peter can't appreciate the subtlety of the monk class warrior from early 90s RPGs because he's too busy being like, I got the power. One of the things that makes Quill suck, especially in the first two Guardians, is he is that good looking, his body is that incredible, and he is able to accomplish everything he's trying to accomplish. It's almost as if Quill loses his edge because he becomes a member of the Guardians. It does tie into that notion that without anything to lose, Quill is more powerful? I don't know. There's a lot of layers here. I don't like Quill more, and I don't forgive him. But the more we're talking about this, the more Quill... Ultimately, making that decision was the only logical progression of his story as it was laid out in Guardians 1, 2, and the beginning of this film. It's not that his character doesn't make sense, it's just that he's still an annoying character. But no, I see what you're saying. The more we examine him and see where his motivations lie, it's not that it was ever an out-of-character choice for him to behave this way. It really does make me think a very different way about this film the more I think about it. It's incredible that Star-Lord's journey had to go this way. There was no other option. Meanwhile, based on his backstory, I feel like there were just so many tons and tons and tons of millions of other options for Thanos. Like, the story that he weaves, his 
plan to save his planet was to kill people indiscriminately, poor and rich alike. And I'm like, if your planet is dying because of a misattribution of wealth and resources, maybe that's what you should be looking to instead of just randomly killing people. And when he's like, what I predicted came to pass, how quickly could that have come to pass that your whole planet fell into chaos, died, and that you survived and are enacting this whole plan? Your story has holes, bro. I would have much preferred Thanos and the Socialism Reform Gauntlet. Yes. One of my favorite moments in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, almost bar none, is Tony Stark and his performance in the battle against Thanos. There is something gut-wrenching about... It's almost like you can see the sickness in the pit of Robert Downey Jr.'s stomach in these scenes. There is something about the look on his face. He is a broken man, and every swing is, oh my god, if I don't make this hit, if I don't collect... It's it's that thing when Thanos says, all that for a drop of blood, and you're just like, no, I, I was so excited there was blood and you ruined it! Right. And, like, I know that we're starting to come down to the wire in terms of runtime but i don't love that the plan goes off the rails so quickly it's about four minutes from when tony first drops that giant thing on thanos to when as i wrote it quill throws a temper tantrum and the fact that while thanos is under mantis's thrall he tries saying for the record this was my plan once again just makes me feel not bad at all for how much i keep shit talking this character but that ties into our theory from last episode so much of Quill's masculinity was put into question by Thor's overwhelming godhood masculinity. And that really dwarfs Star-Lord's efficacy, not just as a leader and a captain, but as somebody who prides himself on being named Lord, and as somebody who thought himself greater than anyone else because of his unique lineage. So now, he sent to this planet to try and help save the day in the face of his greatest nemesis ever, and there's this human dude with this amazing suit who's better than him at everything. And this kid is the fucking best little fastest fighter. And there's this dumb little asshole with a goatee who can time travel. Everything about Star-Lord's fragile sense of self is ripped apart throughout this film. So, of course, in the face of his greatest nemesis, he's going to say the dumbest shit ever. And then, frankly, the thing that we keep making a case for over and over again is Gamora being the emotional center of the Guardians of the Galaxy and the thing that balances all of them. Even if you remove from context his romantic feelings for her, the emotional component that she provides to their team, they're all going to be adrift without her. So even if he's not just upset for himself, he's upset for all of them. What is What would even become of the Guardians without her? And it's so important that we've said over and over again that the Russos helped craft the Guardians into a family at this point. We want them to be together. In Guardians 2, we were kind of like, they're apart the whole movie. Who gives a fuck? In this movie, I cannot help but notice that the Guardians are so segmented. It also helps that now there are enough Guardians to be that segmented. I also can't believe we haven't given any credit to Nebula. Nebula, who at this point in the film, just lights up my life. Karen Gillan is one of those rare cases where the performance goes from like, to oh my god, in no time. That first movie, very flat. This movie, incredible. And she's always disappeared into the role. I don't think I ever felt like I was looking at Karen Gillan in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1, but the quality of the performance has become so above and beyond by this point. I literally have to remind myself over and over again she's Amy Pond, because I believe her performance 
It's almost impossible to believe that that depth and level of nuance and power comes across in all of that intensity. And then you can do still do the kind of funny, silly slapstick stuff you need to do to keep the doctor laughing. And I can't wait to see how she's going to interact with the rest of the Avengers cast in Endgame. We get some really great moments in the battle of different characters interacting. Bucky holding Rocket and spinning around doing a bullet sprinkler TM Brooklyn Nine-Nine was wonderful i feel like there probably must be tons of fan art out there of these two gun-loving motherfuckers already and then obvious i'm certain we've mentioned it already but i can't mention it enough times i am groot i am steve rogers and it's the way that he like holds his hand to his chest when he says it oh it's adorable who captain america is as a man never changes in the heart of battle in the conference room or hanging out in his living room. Captain America is Captain America. Everyone is welcome, as long as they have malice toward no one. He does not need to know who this little tree man is. He does not need to even know there are little tree men. But there is a little tree man, and he helped his buddy Thor, and the two of them should make out with those beards, and that short hair, and pull each other's hair, and pull each other's beards. Might come back to me. Come back to me. Sorry, I got distracted by my tree. So, the movie finally hits this moment where I can't believe that both of these fights, the fight on Titan and the fight on Earth, happens on two different planets because they managed to make Thanos such a threat at this point in the film, I cannot separate Thanos from either fight. Well, this is the point at which the battles are about to merge. Thanos is going toe-to-toe with Tony Stark, and he has him on the rails, and it is at that point that Doctor Strange finally surrenders the Time Stone. Two hours and three minutes. I didn't really know what to make of that moment. It's one of those things where we won't know what to make of it until we see the next film. Like we've said, we have to assume that this was part of his plan. As he says, at two hours, three minutes, and 55 seconds, we're in the endgame now. And wow, that is a title in plain sight. We've speculated a lot as to whether or not that was always intended to be the title. We've seen that it could potentially be Infinity Gauntlet. We've seen that it could be Avengers Annihilation. I like Endgame. It has a really good epilogue feel to it it has a draw to it it makes you want to come back if you've seen any of them i saw that first avengers movie the second one didn't do it for me i caught the third one on streaming okay i'll go to the theater and watch this one and once thanos gets his hands on the fifth and penultimate infinity stone the last 15 to 20 minutes of this movie really takes a huge shift in tone the direction alone becomes so atmospheric and surreal and there's all these like quiet pans of wind blowing through the trees you just know that there's almost nothing they can do at this point that's how i feel the moment thanos stabs tony with his own blade the moment that thanos gets the blade from tony and stabs him with his own nanotech suit blade that was it oh nope they lost even if tony survives they lost. And it's not that the battle of the Avengers on Earth against Thanos isn't engaging. It's really great to watch. And Chris Evans, his performance refusing to give up against Thanos is amazing. The emotion that he pours into that. The sequence between Wanda and Vision. It's wonderful, but especially with Vision being like, it's time, we're out of time. It's just really obvious that Thanos is going to use the Time Stone to get the Mind Stone back once it shatters. I don't get how this stuff works, though, because, like, if he had the Reality Stone, couldn't have used that to get other stones? I, I don't I don't know. It is where the stones themselves fall apart. I had always been very nervous about this being the ultimate endgame of the franchise. 
because in the comics it is certainly not as visually battle style engaging as this. When you're talking about somebody whose power is to completely rewrite reality, there isn't much of a battle. There's just the battle of wills. I think for me, the most jaw-dropping part was I really believed that it was possible that Thor could defeat Thanos in that moment when Stormbreaker charged into Thanos' chest. But I actually think Thor fucks it up almost as much as Star-Lord. If when Thor got there, he immediately pulled the axe out and just started chopping away, I don't think Thanos would have survived. Thanos saying, you should have gone for the head, doesn't really me much and then the snap and the gauntlet burns out i dropped my jaw again when they started disappearing on titan i was kind of convinced it would be contained to earth and that the titan avengers would come back and save everybody i had no idea it was going to be sprinklings of everyone or how many of them it would be i agree that it's at least in part also thor's fault you know you could read that he didn't go for the head so he could gloat for a second i'd like to not read that into his character and that it was just a minor error but you know everyone bears a little bit of responsibility in all of this and then there's the snapping and what did it cost you everything shut up you don't even die from this so we all talk about Mr. Stark, I don't feel so good, and how gut-wrenching it is because Tom Holland and Robert Downey Jr. have the most unbelievable chemistry together. But you know what we don't talk about? The earnest, gut-wrenched, broken way Drax looks to Star-Lord when he doesn't feel right. I think he actually goes like, Quill. Like, there's this moment where I'm just like, oh my god, Drax literally needs his big brother right now. He needs his family. There is something so awful about watching Bucky disintegrate in front of Cap. They're Okoye reacting to T'Challa trying to save her. This is nowhere for you to die. I can't, I can't, I can't. Yeah, I I went through and, you know, took note of everyone. Bucky is the first one to disintegrate. M'Baku is safe. Okoye is safe. T'Challa is dusted. Rocket is safe, as we all know, and Groot is dusted. Wanda is dust and Vision is a corpse. Sam is dust. Rhodey is safe. I think I was the most surprised by how many of the Guardians on Titan, especially if you include on Earth, were dusted. It's everyone except for the nebulous member of nebula who is dusted on titan she's the only one of that group who remains safe Peyton, strange our dust tony is safe pete is actually the last to be dusted i think that's a really interesting symmetry to have such an important character to captain america be the first one to disintegrate and such an important character to iron man be the last and in so many ways, that actually really ties into their characters themselves. Cap is forever the man out of time, and Tony is forever the man trying to hold on to the future. And the way they would lose the people they lose should be fitting. Cap just can't get to Bucky in time, but Tony has to watch Peter leave in his arms. What a tragic legacy for these characters. Of course, one of my favorite things is that, in fact, they used the actual comic moment. It... Thanos does just retire. He's done. And that's that. All in all, I couldn't believe the end of this film. I was just so mind blown. Of course, nothing made me scream one one millionth as loud as the end tag made me scream. Well, first of all, one note I made was that it made me laugh. The way that Maria screams at Nick when it seems like he's going to crash the car, it almost more sounds like she's annoyed that he's not paying attention than anything. She's like, Nick, Nick. I've heard our mother say that so many times in the car, so it, like, gave me flashbacks. Yeah, that is exactly how my mom yells at my dad when he's not paying attention when he's driving. Thank goodness it's not because people are dusting, it's just because my dad has road rage. Right? 
I also didn't love the tease of having Maria Hill here only for her to be dusted along with Nick Fury. I guess, you know, a cameo is a cameo, and she's in it for at least as much as Gwyneth Paltrow was in Spider-Man. I actually love that she got the appearance here, not Hawkeye for any reason. It was really nice that we got Maria Hill, who they honestly tried to make such a big deal out of the fact that she was going to be a focal point in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and she was going to be a strong character from the comics. She really wasn't. She really wasn't utilized as much as she should have been. Colby Smulders is an incredibly likable actress who gives a really strong performance of a dynamic character, so getting her at all made me happy. No, I definitely agree with that. Definitely, definitely agree. Love that Sam L. almost gets a motherfucker in this movie. Good for him. And then we get that bleep and that beeper. That bleep and that beeper represented so many years of feeling different and feeling like I didn't belong and having these heroes that nobody nobody knew about. When I was a kid, I would show my friends comics and I don't want to sound like I would show my friends comics and they would make fun of me. They never were like that. My friends were amazing and they wanted to know more about all of these. Everybody wanted to know about these comics. They just didn't have access to them. Comics weren't a boys club and a private group because people weren't interested. They were inaccessible and poorly marketed. And most of my friends just jumped right in with me to comics. And Carol, when I was a little kid, made me feel better about feeling different. She was different when she was on the X-Men. She was different when she was on the Avengers, part Cree, part human. This was just the only thing that could have made me walk out of that theater feeling hope. I felt hope because I knew Carol was coming. And I don't think casual fans could experience that emotional significance. And it really didn't help that Ant-Man and Wasp was next. And Carol was a movie removed. Infinity is more than just a made-up Yeah, I don't know what went into that choice to put Ant-Man immediately on the heels of Infinity War, to have it be so disconnected from the narrative apart from the end credits sequence. You know, there's a lot of different watch orders floating around for the MCU based on how nonlinear a lot of the stories are, and Ant-Man is one of the ones that makes it the hardest to place if you want to watch Ragnarok and Black Panther immediately before Infinity War, because you would technically have to watch Ant-Man and Wasp even before those. It's just, it's really confusing, and I enjoyed the movie. I do. But this random comedy when we just saw everyone die, and then again at the end of that movie, we're left with this taste of other people being dusted. Random. Getting Janet meant a lot to me and made it worth it, and Hope is such a dynamic, beautiful, powerful, incredible original creation. It was great to see Ghost. I remember thinking that that was the most unfair, unthinkably terrible use of Bill Foster I can possibly imagine in my entire life, and there were too many villains. I just... Remember thinking, God, everyone's a bad guy. That said, when my Janet comes through that quantum gateway and I get my precious Janet, I don't give a fuck. (laughs) It's amazing. And I certainly remember going into this movie having no idea what to expect. Again, especially after Infinity War, but 
we'd mostly just seen, you know, action sequences and finally seeing Hope Van Dyne in action as the Wasp, but there wasn't a huge sense of what this movie was going to be about other than continuing the trend of Ant-Man being the heist franchise. I certainly enjoyed it overall, so I'm looking forward to rewatching it and seeing how I feel about it this close to Endgame. And there isn't much closer to Endgame for us to get. So until we're talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp, Kevo, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, or you can find me on Facebook, once again, at our Facebook page for Husbands Talking More or Less. You can also check out our amazing webcomic, Kid Riot, at KidRiotComics.com, which is filled with inclusive, diverse superheroes saving the day in a modern way. You can also check out our other amazing shows here on the network, like X's for Podcasts, where along with our boyfriend and best friend Jonah, we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise, as well as me with my childhood best friend Chris, taking a look at the now- that's what I call music series in order, charting the changes in pop music and whether or not they reflect culture. If you like what we're doing here, you probably like the other shows here on Cage Club at cageclub.me. Don't forget to check out the Patreon and kick a few dollars toward the network. You can find me on Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Okay, so until it's time to get quantum with it, we'll see ya. Snap.